And this is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Thanks for tuning in on this Veterans Day. It was another dramatic election in Minnesota and around the country this week, and once again, voters confounded the experts with the decisions they made. This hour, we're going to talk about what happened, analyze some of the results, and look ahead to what the new balance of power at the Minnesota State Capitol might mean over the next few years. Joining me are two seasoned analysts of the Minnesota political scene. They both started their careers working at the State House and moved on to bigger and better things. Todd Rapp leans toward the Democrats. He heads up Rapp Strategies. And Chaz Anderson leads toward the Republican side. She works at the firm Park Street Public. Todd and Chaz, thanks for coming on today. Todd, let me start with you. The Democrats had a good night on Tuesday. They swept the statewide constitutional offices, including governor. They won that contested U.S. House seat in the 2nd District. And they somehow managed to flip the state Senate and hold the state House. Why did so many things go so well for the DFL? Well, Mike, and thanks for having us on again. I, uh, you know, it, it, to be honest, it wasn't that bad a night for Republicans. For example, the, the state auditor's result, that's the closest statewide race we've seen in Minnesota uh, since the Frank and Coleman recount. But I think at the end of the day, the last big movement of voters that occurred um, in that last week what was fundamentally about the Dobbs decision, and about the threat to democracy. And those just ended up becoming clear uh, issues for the last 5 or 8% of voters who were either making up their mind or deciding that they were going to vote this year. And while Republicans made, I think, a lot of progress talking about crime and inflation early on in October, I'm not sure their message about what they do about those two was clear enough to balance out, I think, the late push on the Dobbs decision and on the threats to democracy. Chaz, from the uh, different angle or the other angle, what happened to what do you think happened to the Republicans? How how come they couldn't get it done in the end? Well, you know, if you look at what's happening nationally and in Minnesota, you know, we had the worst inflation in decades, uh, the worst collapse of real wages um, in decades, uh, a border crisis that we haven't seen. Um, probably the worst crime wave since the 1990s, and Joe Biden's approval ratings have been the lowest, you know, really since presidential polling happened. And, you know, there wasn't a red wave. So you kind of have to ask, you know, um, you know, voters looked at all the problems and they said basically either we like things the way they are or no thanks to Republican candidates. And I think that's kind of a, a reflection that uh, calls for the future with the Republicans is that, you know, maybe we need to look forward to new candidates, a fresher look, new messaging, and a better political infrastructure, uh, not only in Minnesota, but nationally. And kind of the idea that we would look back and run same candidates, same message, you know, probably doesn't work. Um, and given the environment we had here, there should have probably been a lot more Republican pickups nationally in Minnesota than what happened. And so you really have to wonder, like, and analyze maybe that there needs to be a better message. There needs to be better quality candidates going forward. You did have a couple of fresh faces on the Republican side. Jim Schultz, who ran for attorney general, and uh, Ryan Wilson, who ran for state auditor. And they came ever so close. That's correct. And they were fresh fla- faces, fresh look. I mean, in Minnesota, we haven't elected a Republican attorney general since Doug Head um, in many, many decades. And Jim Schultz got close. Um, and so that's, you know, as Todd said, that's some some bright spots for Republicans is that they had two constitutional offices where they actually almost did win, but they won those with fresh faces and new messages. 
And I think going forward, that really has to be part of the equation for Republicans. Todd Rapp, let's talk a little bit about Governor Tim Walz. He won a second term. Again, it was a tough few years, uh, COVID-19, the murder of George Floyd and the chaos and rioting that followed, inflation, distance learning, uh, dropping test scores for students. It seemed like if ever a governor is going to lose, it would have been this year. How did Tim Walls pull off a 52 to 45 win? Well, sometimes I think we go through periods of time like this, and then we try to apply the old rules to these new situations. And and maybe all of us are a little bit guilty of that. And I think, I believe at a core here, what was happening was that I saw this in surveys for the last year, is that people are kind of down on the direction of the country. Um, they're down on both parties and their leadership, but they're, they're not very confident that the, par- that the country is moving the right direction. But I saw a lot more optimism in Minnesota. I would see a gap of, say, 25 or even 30 points in optimism in Minnesota versus optimism in the country. And, and I think that translated into this election. When you combine that with what I think is a superior get-out-the-vote operation on the Democratic side— it really meant that Republican candidates had to have a much better, bigger lead going into these last 10 days than they showed in, in any poll that I saw. Um, Chaz, what about uh, Scott Jensen? Uh, could a different Republican candidate have done any better against Tim Walz? Mike, you know, it's, you know, Tim Walz is a formidable governor candidate. Um, it was always going to be a difficult to unlodge an incumbent a governor, particularly in Minnesota. If you remember back in 2006, uh, Tim Pawlenty faced some pretty tough political wins and managed to survive. So uh, dislodging incumbent governors in Minnesota is not an easy task. Uh, governor Dayton, same in 2014. And so I think, you know, when it gets down to it, you know, undecideds, you know, the traditional thinking was, well, if you're undecided going into the election day, you're likely to vote against the incumbent. And I think for the the past several cycles, that's really not the case. I think when people are going into an election undecided, they look at both candidates and kind of lean towards keeping what they know. And um, they may not have liked some of the decisions Governor Walls has made over the past four years. But they know, you know, what kind of what goes into his decision making and they know what they're going to face in the next four years. That's Chaz Anderson. She's our Republican analyst. Todd Rapp, a DFLer, is here, too. Uh, we've been saying uh, one of the surprising results from Tuesday night was that the DFL managed to flip control of the state Senate from Republican to DFL. And the new 34 member DFL caucus has already met and chosen a new leader for their major- majority. It's Minneapolis Senator Kerry Dietzik. And Senator Dietzik is here on the line now. Senator, thanks for coming on and congratulations. Uh, thank you. And thank you for inviting me to talk. Now, uh, I was talking just last week to uh, Senator Aaron Murphy about the election. She said the DFL had a narrow path to pick up control. It turned out to be extremely narrow. You, you got it by one seat. How surprised were you on Tuesday when you actually saw it happening? Uh, it was a very exciting moment. I have uh, I was the finance chair, co-finance chair in the campaign, and so actively involved in it and telling people we had a, we had a path to victory. Um, we always believed it. We worked hard and um, had great conversations with our neighbors at the doors and Uh, So it was just an exciting evening. A lot of people have also uh, noticed and commented on the diversity of the incoming Senate DFL caucus. 
How important is that, and what will it change about the way Minnesota is governed? Uh, we have the most diverse caucus ever, and that's very exciting. Um, you know, we look like what Minnesota looks like, and we represent people um, all across the state. We represent all Minnesotans. I think that, um, you know, we're just ready to do the work and to lead and to get, you know, get the job done for the state of Minnesota. 34 to 33 in the Senate next year, as close as it gets. What does that mean for legislating? Does it force you to be more bipartisan, or does it limit what you can achieve, or because you have the majority, are you just going to pass your agenda? Um, We just met for the first time yesterday, and just starting to, you know, get to know each other better. We have a large freshman class, and so, you know, we're just starting. We don't have a we haven't set an agenda yet. Uh, we talked, you know, on a, when we did the campaign, we had great candidates who had great conversations on the doors, talking to their neighbors about issues important in their community. And so, you know, we'll get together again and kind of flesh out more um, and work with the House and the governor to uh, plan an agenda. But it will be about helping Minnesotans. And, um, you know, I think with this slim majority, it will, you know, we're going to have to be we're going to have to be very deliberate and intentional and have those intentional conversations with our members and the state of Minnesotans. And, um, you know, we'll get there. There's so much that we agree on across the state that I think that we have a lot of places where we can start. Well, uh, certainly uh, reproductive rights uh, was a a huge issue in the election uh, after the Supreme Court uh, overturned Roe versus Wade. Um, there's been talk about codifying a right to abortion in state law. There's also been talk about uh, putting a right to legal abortion on the ballot in 2024 as a constitutional amendment. What do you think about that idea? You know, we haven't had the specific conversations yet. Um, I haven't been involved in an amendment conversation, but I think, you know, we did hear from Minnesotans that they cared about rights and they cared about people's civil rights and they cared about reproductive rights. And so I think that will be that will be an item that we'll be talking about as part of our agenda. Um, I also think the election, you know, told us that Minnesotans want stability and civility and they just want us to get the work done. And so we're going to get together and meet and have conversations with the House and governor and we're ready to lead and ready to get the work done for Minnesota. And, of course, there's still that big surplus on the table, uh, budget surplus. It was $9 billion. Who knows what it'll be? I guess we'll find out soon enough. Um, there was a, a bill that passed in the Senate, a tax bill. Uh, one of the things it did was uh, uh, eliminated the income tax on Social Security benefits. Is that something you're still interested in doing? So the Senate passed a tax bill and the House passed a different tax bill. They had an agreement at the end of session, but the you know the bill was never brought to the to the either body floor, as far as I remember. And so you know the overall package unfortunately wasn't passed. And um, you know we're ready to lead, and I think that will also be part of the discussion. Um, I think there were several good items in a variety of the bills at the end of session that didn't pass last year that I think will you know we'll be bringing up and talking about them again. Well, uh, speaking of taxes, the governor campaigned on his rebate checks. That wasn't in either of those bills that passed earlier this year. Uh, Is that now on the table? You know, we met with the governor. I met with the governor and Speaker Hartman this morning for the first time. And and so, you know, we just sat down and started the conversation. And both Speaker Hartman and I want to involve our caucuses on what this agenda will look like. So 
you know, we'll be we'll be talking that, you know, more amongst ourselves in the next month and then, you know, across the state in the next, you know, as we get ready for the next session. Uh, I'm trying to pin you down. It doesn't seem like you want to be pinned down. Well, you know, um, it's been it's been an amazing, you know, few days. And, you know, again, as I mentioned, we have a large freshman class. We have members that were working very hard to win their own districts. And so they didn't know the new members coming in. And those, a lot of those new members worked really hard to get there. And so, you know, it's been a lot to absorb in the last few days. And, you know, as we get to know each other and we'll be getting, you know, talking more about what they were hearing at the doors about the issues important in their communities. And so what they need in their communities. And so, um, you know, as my role in leadership, I plan to have those conversations with them so that we can come together to create an agenda that benefits all Minnesotans. Hmm. We have members that represent areas from International Falls to uh, southern Minnesota and many places in between. And so want to, you know, work with them to, again, pass bills and work on um, the issues that Minnesotans have talked about so that we can help Minnesotans and give Minnesotans all Minnesotans across this entire state, the opportunity to succeed. Um, okay, well, how about this one? Uh, income tax rate cuts, that was a big priority of the Republicans when they were in charge. Is that now off the table? Again, that was part of the bill that uh, I was on tax committee, and so I've been involved in those conversations for the last two years, and that was, and again, the bill that didn't pass. And I think, you know, we're, there were um, other think tanks that also you know, conservative think tanks that had different ideas, um, liberal groups that had different ideas. And so reaching out to uh, start those conversations again about what we think is best for Minnesotans moving forward. I know you're super busy, and I just want to ask you a couple more quick ones. Um, Legal marijuana and sports betting, have the chances improved for those issues? uh, Legalizing marijuana is popular with um, many Minnesotans. And it's been popular for a while, and so I do think that is something that we will have the discussion on. And sports betting, uh, I have several constituents that send me notes all the time and call me all the time, and they want to see that passed. And so, again, I think we will just continue to have those conversations. Uh, I have not talked specifics about that one with um, other members of my caucus, and we'll be doing that shortly. But um, I know those, those two bills have a lot of interest across Minnesota. And there was talk about a lame duck special session, uh, maybe for public safety, maybe for bonding. I- is there any chance that would happen at this point? You know, the governor is the one that has to call the special session, and so uh, I think that's a better question to ask of Governor Walls. Well, we'll do that when we get him on. Uh, Carrie Dietzik, thank you so much for coming on. I do appreciate it. The incoming majority leader of the Minnesota Senate, and congratulations again. Thank you. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about the election, what happened on Tuesday, and what comes next. You know, uh, as we go on today, we're going to be talking to some of the folks who won. And the person who had the biggest win here in Minnesota on Election Day was Secretary of State Steve Simon. He got 55% of the statewide vote, more than 1,345,000 votes. He was reelected to a third four-year term. Steve Simon, congratulations and thanks for coming on. Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, Why do you think you won? Did it surprise you that you were the top vote-getter of all the statewide candidates? Well, I think the important thing is it was just about making sure that we were sticking up for 
democracy and that we were protecting the freedom to vote. I think people saw that as a priority, and particularly the last two or three years. I think there's been more attention paid to this office, this post. I don't mean me as an individual. I just mean the job. And people have come to understand and appreciate the job, the post, and its importance for democracy. And I think people you know, are, are mostly proud of what we have accomplished in Minnesota, being number one in the country so many times in a row in voting. And, of course, there are people who uh, have doubts or are skeptical, and that's okay. But I think what voters probably said is – that's all fine. Doubts or skepticism or hard questions. But when it veers into open hostility and outright disinformation, they're not on that team. And that is what I think the voters were saying. A little better than 60 percent turnout in Minnesota this year, not quite as high as 2018. Was it the highest in the nation this year? We don't know. We're due at this point. Literally, the dust is not settled because we don't have the final vote totals in Minnesota. We do have for particular offices, obviously, but we have to figure out the number. We are duking it out with the state of Maine as we speak. One of us is going to be the national champs. I don't know whether it'll be Maine or Minnesota. Um, We hope it's us, but we won't know probably for another few days. And a couple of uh, recounts on the horizon in uh, some House districts in northeastern Minnesota. Um, When would those happen? Well, the first thing that has to happen is the counties have to canvas their results. They'll be doing that here quickly in the next week or so. Then afterwards, all the... Uh, you know, machinery will kick into gear on recounts. The political parties presumably will uh, be calling for those and their lawyers will be ginning up that process. So that's in two uh, legislative districts uh, in northern northeastern Minnesota. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll we'll wait on those, see what happens. Um, things generally seem to go pretty smoothly on Tuesday night as far as voting went. Uh, was that your impression, too, in your office? Yes, it was a really good election We, from an administrative standpoint. We had all 30,000 election judges that we needed throughout Minnesota. That's always a really big cornerstone. You don't want to have uh, understaffed polling places. Uh, the equipment and machines, with some limited, isolated exceptions, worked really well. Uh, there were no incidents that we heard of, certainly that I've heard of, of voter intimidation or threats or anything like that against election officials or election judges. There was one issue in Chisago City, some of your listeners might mm-hmm. recall, where it's a, it's a particularly large precinct and they had some backups and lines. But that was, I think, pretty quickly solved. The, the county uh, got right on it. We called them. They got in some more information. So overall, it was administratively very, very smooth. You brought up the issue of election integrity and doubts about uh, the last election. Um Some people said democracy was on the ballot. I heard somebody interviewed by the BBC the other day saying the results around the country took some of the steam out of that election denial position. Uh, Do you feel that way? Did did democracy uh, redeem itself in this election? I think we went a long way this week in this election to helping break the fever around election denialism. And I want to be very clear with your listeners When I talk about election denial or disinformation, I'm not talking about disagreement. There are reasonable, smart, ethical, patriotic people who disagree with me or some of your listeners on election policy. That's not what I mean. I mean people who are willingly spreading disinformation, outright lies in many cases about what the system is, not what it should be. We should have the argument about that, of course, all all the time. But what the system uh, what the system actually is, how it really operates, how the reality of it. 
And so I think we went a long way towards helping to break that fever. Now we are he- heading into a presidential year. And your listeners know things to get tend to get even more intense in a presidential year. And depending on who's on the ballot and what they're saying, we could see more of this talk uh, of uh, disinformation. I hope not. I hope this has, as I say, you know, helped us along the path to, to breaking that fever. And we can get back to the discussions we should always have about, you know, what laws should we add or lo- what laws should we subtract or how should we do elections differently? Reasonable, smart people can disagree on that stuff. Well, speaking of new laws, the DFL uh, will have control at the Capitol next year, both the House and Senate and the governor's office. What kind of changes to election law will you uh, push for and what would you like to see passed? Well, there are a few, and, and there are some that I think um, uh, are, have some real chance for bipartisan support. Things like restoring the right to vote for those who have left prison behind. That has already demonstrated pretty broad bipartisan support at the legislature. I'd love to see that get across the finish line. Also, things like automatic voter registration, which many states now have enacted, red states, blue states, you name it. That's a really... Um, uh, good way to make our voter rolls uh, cleaner and better and get more people into the system. So, you know, I'm cautiously optimistic about the things that we can accomplish. Those are just a couple of the examples. Um, We we always want to get the balance right in Minnesota. Uh, We want to make sure we have uh, strong access, but also strong security. And there are people on both sides of the aisle, in my experience, having been a former legislator who has something to contribute. How important is it, uh, to have bipartisan support for these changes? Well, I mean, you always want as much consensus as you can get, obviously. Um, And the ideas that I mentioned, for example, are ones that have enjoyed bipartisan support. So, uh, you know, you get as much support as you can, and you want it to be as bipartisan as it can be, of course. And I assume one thing that won't happen with DFL majorities is a requirement that uh, voters have to show a a photo ID I think that's correct. I think that's unlikely given the nature of the proposals uh, in the past, which, at least in my opinion, I don't have a vote on the House or Senate, but in my opinion, have been too restrictive and risk shutting out many, many eligible voters. Just before I let you go, um, talked a little about your race and what the voters may have been saying there. But, you know, a lot of people were saying this was going to be a good Republican year turned out to be a fairly decent uh, de- Democratic year. What do you think the message was that voters sent this time? Well, I, you know, I hesitate to wade into sort of partisan-based punditry, but what I'll say is I'll try to stay in the lane of, of, of my election, which is I think people were saying, look, we've got a good thing going here in Minnesota in terms of our election system and in terms of uh, being a model for the nation in many ways. Not perfect by any means, but as I mentioned before, we're not on the team, I think Minnesotans were saying, of disinformation and about distortion. And we have something to be proud of, always something that could be changed or reformed or or tinkered with. And I think that message is is what resonated. Um, As for other races, I'll leave that to other pundits. Minnesota Secretary of State Steve Simon, newly elected to a third term starting in January. Congratulations again. Thank you, and thanks for having me. Thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking to us throughout the campaign. My pleasure. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about this week's election and what the results mean going forward. 
Certainly one of the more surprising developments Tuesday was the fact that Democrats kept control of the Minnesota House and even managed to eke out control of the state Senate by just one district. It means for the first time in years, Minnesota's government will be under the control of one party, the DFL, when the legislature reconvenes in January. Joining me now on the phone to talk more about it is the Speaker of the Minnesota House, DFL Representative Melissa Hortman of Brooklyn Park. Madam Speaker, congratulations and thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. You said on Tuesday night that uh, what really made the difference was a good map after redistricting and the Dobbs decision that overturned Roe versus Wade made reproductive rights a powerful issue. Uh, who do you think that abortion decision motivated who otherwise might have stayed home on Tuesday night? Well, I think it's too early to say. We're hearing from some national data that uh, there was a bigger uh, turnout with young voters. I think we don't know the gender breakdown. We certainly know that after the Dobbs decision, voter registrations by women um, shot up disproportionately relative to men, but voter registrations shot up kind of across the board. So it's probably a broad group of people. I think the vote total in Secretary Simon's race also makes clear that democracy was on the ballot and that voters overwhelmingly rejected election deniers and conspiracy theorists. Um, I'm sure you know that Republicans were extremely confident they would win the majority in the House. They would flip the House. Do you think their message was weak, or was the abortion issue and that democracy issue, were they just uh, stronger for you than, than they were willing to acknowledge? Well, I think we had stronger candidates that fit their districts better than the Republicans. In some cases, the Republicans had candidates who were quite extreme. Our members had really solid grounding in their communities and um, decades of involvement, whether as teachers or coaches or local government officials. I think our candidates were better. Uh, I, we, our candidates worked very hard. Uh, while the Republicans were busy measuring the drapes at the state capitol, we were out on the trail working hard. I know they worked hard as well, hmm. but I think that we outworked them in terms of um, candidate efforts and caucus efforts in pulling kind of all of our oars in the same direction, uh, engaging our entire team. It was a full team effort to win the House. On the issue of reproductive rights, uh, there's talk of uh, codifying uh, abortion rights in law. There's also some talk of uh, putting the question on the ballot in 2024 as a constitutional amendment. What do you think about that idea? Well, I think the statutory uh, protection is is an important one and I think could move relatively quickly. I think when we talk about amending the constitution of the state, we have to be a little bit more careful uh, in terms of what items belong in a constitution and what are, you know, the impacts on the overall electorate. How do you make sure that people are well educated on what the question is about? The phrasing of it is always uh, quite an intensive debate, whether it's the motor vehicle sales tax or uh, the proposed uh, ban on same-sex marriage in 2012. So the legislature gets a little bit more tied in knots, uh, and appropriately so, about proposed constitutional amendments. But I think the statutory protections, as I said, could move relatively quickly. Hmm. Um, you have a majority, but again, it's still a fairly slim majority. Seventy members take 68 to pass a bill. Uh, so and a very slim majority in the Senate, just one vote. 
what does that mean for legislating? Does it force you to be more bipartisan, or does it limit what you can do, or does it uh, does it mean you've got the majority and you're just going to pass your agenda? Well, we're united across our very diverse caucuses on the key issues that Minnesotans care about. We are united on investing in public education. We're united on making health care more affordable and making our economy work better for everyone. So I think when you look at the core bread and butter issues that, that voters care about, we are united, um, as Senator Dizek said, from you know International Falls to the Iowa border and from the Dakotas to, to Wisconsin. Uh, we also have a pro-choice caucus. We have a caucus who understands that the climate is changing and that we need to take action to prevent the worst impacts of the climate crisis. And we have a caucus that has the votes to pass gun violence prevention measures and to protect democracy. I think those are all things that we are united across the board on. One uh, big issue uh, for your caucus last time was paid family and medical leave. And just to remind uh, me and the listeners, that would be a little uh, – I think the House plan was a little like unemployment insurance. There, There's a sort of a state pool. Uh, eventually, there would be a payroll tax, um, and it would help people out who don't get paid leave when they have a child or adopt a child or have an illness in the family. Um, how big of a priority is that for you this uh, next year? It's a huge priority. And with the budget surplus that we have – we could look at pre-funding uh, part of it before uh, payroll tax would kick in. So, it, for example, in the state of Washington, they enacted it, and then they had to wait two years until anybody could take off uh, paid family or medical leave. But here in Minnesota, we could get a program up and running much more quickly if we use a portion of the surplus to prepay uh, all of our premiums for that. And, and it's exactly what you said it is. When a person is sick, they need to take time off to care for somebody in their family or to care for themselves. They should be able to take that time off and have pay because when people don't have paid time off, they come to work sick. They get other people sick. We lose productivity. Um, and, and it's really an issue of privilege where we have people who at the higher end of the income scale where paid time off is a, a, just a standard part of their salary and people on the lower end of the pay scale have to go to work when they're sick, and we, we can fix that, and I expect that we will. Do you think you can get um, Republican votes for that, or or will it be something that'll have to pass with just DFL votes? Well, we have a very big new class of members, so I don't know a ton about the Republican members who came in in the districts that weren't super competitive for us. So I do know there are some quite far-right Republicans. Uh, I know that there were uh, there was a move uh, pretty hard to the right. Uh, so we'll have to see. There at, at a time, there were such a thing as moderate Republicans. That does seem to be an endangered species. So I'm not sure if we have any folks who would be uh, willing to cross party lines and vote on uh, paid family and medical leave. I certainly hope so. I look forward to engaging the talents of every single member. They are all elected representatives from their communities, and they have something to bring here at the at the state legislature. I've certainly been a member in the minority, and I've uh, had great ideas to bring to the table and a spirit and willingness to improve the lives of Minnesotans. So we are happy to work with anybody who's willing to be collaborative. 
Okay, so paid family medical leave, uh, education spending, th- those are going to account for a chunk of that big surplus. Um, tax cuts. Uh, last, last uh, I should say earlier this year, the uh, deal was to eliminate the tax on Social Security. Is that something that could pass the House next year? It could. It certainly will be in the mix. You know, we had, I thought, a very good agreement uh, that Senator Miller had committed his caucus to, and I think um, it it would have served Minnesota well to pass the agreement that we had reached. Um, But when they walked away from the negotiating table, the reason they did is they thought they were going to win everything and they were going to do some quite different things than what we agreed to. Uh, Now the shoe is on the other foot and the new majority in the Minnesota Senate will have uh, perspective to bring to the bargaining table and Democrats in the House and Democrats in the Senate will negotiate some different agreements than what Democrats in the House had negotiated with uh, Republicans in the Senate. So I think until the DFL Senate has a tax chair, uh, well, they have a tax chair, but until we have a tax chair and our tax chairs can start talking to one another and to the governor's team, we won't really have a sense of all the different policy options that are on the table. Well, I mean, one thing the governor ran on, and he still seems to want, uh, are those walls checks, the rebate checks. Uh, that wasn't in the bill this time, uh, the last time. Uh, could it be in the bill next time? Well, it was certainly an issue that was uh, dead on arrival in the, the Republican-led Senate. And so when the House constructed its tax bill last time around, we had a number of really good ideas that we wanted to bring to the negotiating table. We knew that the governor would bring that to the negotiating table. That was part of the discussion at the negotiating table. And, you know, we certainly value the partnership with the governor's office. But now, um, as we talked about, it's a whole new ball game with the DFL-run Senate. So we'll take a look at that. We certainly will work with the governor both before we come into session and then continue the deep engagement we've had with one another um, during the session. I know you're busy and you have to go uh, legal marijuana and sports betting. Those likely to pass? I would, pre- I would predict that both of those things will happen, yes. All right. Speaker Melissa Hortman, DFLer. Congratulations again, and thanks for coming on. Thank you. Have a great weekend. This is NPR News. I'm Mike Mulcahy. We're talking about the election today, and our poor analysts have been sitting here all this time while I've been talking to these folks. Uh, Chaz Anderson is here. She's a Republican analyst. She works for the firm Park Street Public, and Todd Rapp is on the line. He leans toward the Democrats. He heads up Rapp Strategies. And thanks for holding on. Um, let me ask you, since we just got off the, the line with the Speaker Hortman, just because, Todd, and I'll, I'll aim this at you first because it's about Democrats, just because the DFL has the governor's office, the House, and the Senate, does that mean smooth sailing and everything's going to pass quickly and the governor will get what he wants? Or is can, does this have the potential to get as tangled up as it did during divided government? Well, I don't know that it's going to take as long as it takes during divided government, but certainly when you have small majorities in caucuses, and you could you could tell, especially when Senator Dietzik was on, that you want to be just a little cautious of getting too far ahead of your members. Now, Speaker Hortman, she's been um, the speaker now for a little while, and I think she's got a better feel where the members are, but I think the majority leader was wise to say, give us a chance to get to know each other and talk together and, and frame up an agenda. Todd, As you I, get Todd later, we, were, we were trying to make news. 
(laughs) (laughs) And I I agree that you should, but I'm not surprised at all that uh, with the answers that she gave. I think as you get farther in session, you're going to find that there are some clear divisions, maybe not in the overall goals, but in how you accomplish those goals. And it's still going to take a while in April and May to piece together the finance bills that are really going to frame up the success of the 2023 session. Chaz Anderson, what do you think about that? Well, certainly we've had experience, you know, in 2013 and 14, uh, the DFL controlled the House Senate and the governor's office. And uh, like Todd said, I think, you know, they'll finish on time. It would be would be kind of a bad thing if they didn't finish on time. But, you know, the some of the details and negotiating those details out will take some time. It did in 2013-14. They went right down to the deadline uh, to midnight. Um, and I just think it's, it's there's a lot of details in the omnibus bills they have to work out on various policy areas. I think what you might see is some individual bills move separately um, from omnibus bills and get signed right away. Um, some bills such as paid medical leave or sports betting or legalized marijuana, uh, some of those bills might move separately and move quicker than the omnibus bills. But in terms of the biennial budget, it's a it's a lot of work to put together a budget, to put together omnibus bills, to negotiate the, all of the details of the bills. And they'll take, you know, to the end of session to get that done. Mm. It's a hard job no matter who's in charge. Correct. It's hard. It doesn't matter who's in charge. Um, the speaker mentioned this, and I wanted to ask you about it. Um, it seemed like Republicans were unwilling to come back for a special session earlier this year. Even though uh, Senator Miller, uh, the majority leader in the Senate, had agreed to that big picture plan to carve up the budget surplus. Was that a mistake? Is the lesson uh, from this election, if somebody offers you a half a loaf or a quarter a loaf, you should take it? Well, people who know me and just from my experience at the state capitol, deals never get better with time. Um, So I always say when you have a deal on the table and you feel you've, you've... uh, negotiated the deal, you should take it, run with it, pass it, um, because they never seem to get better with time. And I think, you know, we could use this example as as such as that they didn't pass the deal thinking they would just wait and get a better deal later. And I've never experienced a situation where that happens. Todd, what do you think? Was that a big mistake by the GOP? Well, you, you make the best decision you can at the time. And in, in, in hindsight, yes, it probably was a mistake. But at the time, the Dobbs decision hadn't come down yet. Um, President Trump and the role that he was going to play in this campaign was was still somewhat undefined. A lot of nationally, those primary uh, uh, campaigns were not done yet. Just a lot happened in the time after negotiations broke down at the Capitol. But I agree with Chaz. Sometimes the, the deal that's right in front of you, you may you may think you've got something better down the road, but there's a lot going on in politics that can change that if you wait too long. Hmm. Well, let me ask you about uh, an issue that uh, Speaker Hortman and uh, Steve Simon brought up, and that uh, was the future of democracy on the ballot. Um, it seemed to be a big one for a lot of Democrats, didn't it, Chaz? Certainly, um, that issue has been in play um, really since the end of the 2020 elections when um, President Trump was bringing up um, saying that some of the states were really he really won them and President Biden didn't win them and had election deniers when even the governors in the state, for example, Georgia, Governor Kemp, you know, certified the election and said President Biden won Georgia. And so there was a lot of anxiety, a lot of um, people going to county boards and 
putting pressure on them to make changes to election laws. Um, and I think it's really good, as uh, Secretary of State Simon said, that the elections in Minnesota went very smoothly. Um, there was really, I think, very few hiccups, uh, fewer than in past election cycles. And I think that uh, bodes well for, you know, moving forward and um, and not having these issues of coming up of, of people denying election results. Mm. Um, so that's good for Minnesota. And I think a lot across the country, it was smoother than it was in 2020, which I think helps the situation as well. And I think most of those who were defeated conceded. Uh, that's correct. I mean, I think there's still nationally some outstanding right. races in, in in Congress. And of course, Arizona is still counting ballots. Right. Um, but uh, for the most part, the people who lost have conceded those races. Todd Rapp, what do you think? Are the election deniers done? Is that issue past us? Well, I think it was a good year for getting back to normalcy. Let's remember, 2020 was a national election in the middle of an unprecedented pandemic. And a lot of states took steps to try to make sure that nobody was disenfranchised. And in doing so, they ran into the tornado that is Donald Trump, who wanted to push back on those steps. But more importantly, will never accept that he loses an election. And so now we're, we're a little bit beyond that. We've been able to see how well elections run. I think there's only right now three U.S. Senate races left to be decided. Um, that's a, a lot of progress compared to where we were in 2020. So I think we took a big step forward. Now we've got to see who the candidates are in 2024 for president and to what extent having democracy on the ballot um, is still important. Do you think maybe those January 6th hearings had a bigger impact than some people may have thought? Todd, let me ask you that. I, I think the importance of the January 6th hearing was it, it, it happened, obviously, months after the actual January 6th event and in, in front of a different Congress, a different president, a different political environment. And that gave some people a chance to sit back and listen a bit more closely to what was going on. I, you know, they still had a partisan flavor to them. There's no, you can't deny that. But at least there was some distance so people could put it in perspective. And to that extent, yes, I think it did make a difference. Uh, both the speaker and the new majority leader uh, talked about how they have people on board from the Canadian border to the Iowa border and the, you know, Wisconsin to the Dakotas. But rural Minnesota uh, really has moved uh, to the right. Uh, do you think what's happening there, Chaz? And is that a problem for Democrats if they can't get back more support in rural areas in the long term? Certainly, um, rural Minnesota has become a lot more red. Uh, there are seats, House and Senate seats in Minnesota that 10 years ago were in, in control of the DFL. Now they're represented by Republicans. But on the flip side of that, you know, the Republicans have lost ground in suburban areas that were traditionally uh, red in, in nature and elected Republicans. And so you kind of see this polarization happening, not only in Minnesota, but throughout the country where rural rural areas are getting more red. Um, suburban areas are, are trending more blue. And so I think it's just a sign of the polarized uh, political environment we live in right now. Um, I'm certain that it's likely those, um, you know, those differences will continue and we'll see that, you know, suburban areas becoming more blue and the flip for rural areas. And, you know, I'm not sure, you know, what the solution is, but um, both parties have to to look at that and bridge how they can attract 
voters um, in areas where they haven't been successful in recent cycles. Mm-hmm. And Todd, what do you think about that? Because I think uh, there's been a lot of talk about the Iron Range and and how it's been going red and, you know, the 8th District in northern Minnesota. But you look at the 3rd District, the, the suburbs around Minneapolis, and that seems to be going solid blue almost. Yeah, um, Dakota County, um, western Hennepin County, Washington County, um, they were more blue this year than they were four years ago. Um, the, those counties outstate with colleges uh, almost universally were more blue than they've been in the past and certainly went into the walls uh, camp. But, you know, what, what's happening right now in the smaller rural counties is really interesting. Uh, of the 70 counties that have fewer than 25,000 voters in this election, Scott Jensen won 65 of them. And the overwhelming majority of those he won with more than 60% of the vote. I mean, that, that's, it, it's demonstrating that in those rural townships, the, the, the pro-Republican vote now is becoming almost as strong as the pro-Democratic vote is inside the 694-494 Beltway. The difference being the 694-494 is growing where those rural counties are actually stable or shrinking in population. Hmm. Um, let, let me uh, zoom out a little bit and uh, go to sort of the big picture. Um, tight margins in the House and Senate here at the state level also... However it's going to turn out, we don't know yet, still counting votes. Tight margins, though, in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate. You would like to think that tight margins would make legislators more moderate and responsive to people, maybe more willing to try to find the middle. But on the other hand, we keep seeing all this gridlock. So what's going to happen, Chaz? Gridlock or cooperation? You know, I've worked in a in the House uh, caucus where we've had very slim majorities. At one time, it was 69 members. Uh, Speaker Hortman has 70. And other times when it's been in the upper 70s and as high as 81. And there's a lot of cohesion, a lot of togetherness in caucuses that are small, that they have to stick together. They're all in this together. Um, the speaker and, and majority leader have to really vet their proposals. So you heard Senator Dietzik, Senate Majority Leader Dietzik, talking about, I have to go back to my caucus and discuss with them. She really means that because in a tight caucus, you really have to vet every uh, omnibus bill and bill you move forward. And so close numbers can bring a togetherness um, and that and kind of a cooperation and also a, a bit of a modern, you know, modern, you know, pushing modern policies, uh, moderate policies mm. forward. So that's the good thing about a small caucus. The bad thing is you you really can't have a lot of people saying, well, I don't like that. I'm going to vote no. Um, that can cause a lot of division in the caucus. But, you know, with the, I think they understand Speaker Hartman's had 70 members in the last two years. She's managed it well. She knows what she has to do. Um, so I think, you know, they'll put together bills and proposals, bring them to the Senate House floors. And I always say leaders bring bills to the floor that pass, that get enough votes to pass, and they'll do the same for the next two years. Todd, what do you think, gridlock or cooperation? Well, it always ends up somewhere in between, doesn't it, Mike, it <laughs> seems. that I, I, think, I, I think if the message that the voters were sending was not that the Democrats necessarily want their representatives to be more moderate on their goals, or even Republicans want their representatives to be more moderate on the goals. I think they were saying they want a different tone and a different culture in the debate, that they want to have 
um, respectful understanding that people come first rather than the political wars that you want to have. I think we have somewhat turned our back on the, the very strong personal attacks that we've seen too often over the last six years. But I don't really think the goals are going to change that much because I think both parties have defined them well. And they do pretty well represent where the center of their party's voters come from. Todd, is Minnesota a blue state, a red state, or a purple state? Well, Mike, if uh, if it wasn't for about 530 split-ticket voters in, the, in Senate District 3 and Senate District 41, we'd be sitting here right now with a purple result. So let's be a little careful. We're still a blue state for statewide races and primarily a purple state uh, when it comes to the state elections but uh, for legislature. But having said that, you know, occasionally one of the parties wins uh, both the House and the Senate. And like I say, about a little over 500 votes in two Senate districts made sure that the Senate flipped this time. Chaz, how do you what do you think about that question? Sure. I mean, I, I, I agree with what Todd said. And legislative races every cycle come down to hundreds, thousands of votes difference, who controls what chamber. Um, and, you know, you really have to battle it out in each of those districts. Um, you know, you look at Senator Abler had a tight race. Uh, I think he door knocked his district many times over and, you know, he, he needed those extra votes and, and got them. So these legislative races come down to just really tight margins. The legislature is truly purple in respect to the races, uh, and the total votes that come out in the end. And so even though two years ago, Republicans won the Senate, it was the same small margin that they lost the Senate this time around. Let me ask you an unfair question with about 30 seconds to go. What do Republicans have to do to finally win a statewide race in Minnesota? Sure. I think that they have to. They really need to build better political infrastructure. I think the Democrats do that very well. They have a very coordinated effort that's well-funded, and they have the infrastructure to get out voters and get their message across to voters. I think Republicans have really uh, failed in that respect and need to really look at uh, rebuilding. And I also think, you know, as I said earlier in our conversation here, um, we need to look forward with candidates, fresh, fresh faces, fresh message, fresh ideas, um, not look to the past to run candidates. Um, and so that's going to be a key in the presidential race in 2024. Chaz Anderson, our Republican analyst, you get a special award for helping us on election night, doing it on relatively short notice. Thank you so much for that. And thanks so much for coming on today. Thank you for having me. Todd Rapp, thank you, too, for being here on Election Night and again today. We appreciate it. Great to talk with both of you. Well, that will just about do it for our program today and for Politics Friday for a while. Thanks so much for being with us throughout this long campaign. I hope the program helped you get a sense of the candidates and the issues. We sure learned a lot doing it. We had some fun, too. Our producer today was Twyla Dang with strong support from the hardest-working person in broadcasting, Mr. Jeff Jones. Our technical director was Jess Berg. I'm Mike Mulcahy. Have a great weekend, and we'll see you here again soon.